Hello, I'm Jack Badams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast whose host got bitten to make this show, then we are the natural selection. This is How Many Geese. On a mission to Mexico. And then our nectivorous bats is the one, the classic one that everybody loves because they, they pollinate some night-blooming flowers. And the big one there is tequila. So with no bats, there's no tequila. It's kind of a very difficult time for me because I'm, I'm just working for my life. Molly, are you talking from personal experience here? I am indeed. I got chased by a pregnant hormonal anteater. Jack has just turned to me and said, oh, put the mic on. Yeah, so here we go. In the tree sat above us is one of the coolest named animals on the planet. Um, termite? <laughs> There's a bat falcon. Oh, yes. Sat up in the dead tree just there. Come on. I... Oh, I'm under a different tree to Jack. I can't see. It's set it. up. Can we can we take this mobile? Can let's we, go mobile. Let's go mobile. We're going we're going roaming. Much like Bane. Time to go mobile. <laughs> Very apt with the bat falcon. Yeah. <laughs> so we're now on the move. We're, we're on the move through we're the forest. Stepping out. No, he's just sat up there. You see him? He's moving his head around. Oh, he's very yep. silhouetted. Yep, I see him. And that is a bat falcon, which, for listeners in America and Europe, probably about the size of a kestrel, maybe a little bigger. And they're very striking. They're quite orangey underneath, and then they've got a really black, like the classic falcon black head and teardrops that come down by the eyes. They also, I learned yesterday from somebody uh, who says that they hunt dragonflies as well, so not exclusively. Dragon falcon would have also been a dragon falcon is sick. Yeah. But there he is, just sat there, live wildlife watching on how many geese. Yeah. Some would say you could never make bird watching work on a podcast. Not us. And well, not us, Roddy Shaw. We wouldn't say it, but that doesn't mean they might not be right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the focus of today's episode is not on bat falcons, but on actual bats themselves. And to find out more about what happened when Kalak Mull got dark, we needed to find ourselves a bat scientist. So we woke one up from a midday slumber and stuck some microphones in front of us. So, in our bid to learn more about bats, we found our very own creature of the night. <laughs> We've got Ashley here. Hello, Ashley. Hello. Welcome to the show. Um, would you like to just introduce yourself uh, and explain a little bit about what you do? Okay, so my name is Ashley Green. I've been a bat biologist for about the last 15 years. Um, and currently I'm in Kellick Mall doing uh, just some general bat monitoring for Upwall. Brilliant. Now, we are hoping that you're going to be able to teachers and the listeners all about bats so where can we start yeah so generally the best place to start is you guys tell me what you know about bats and then we'll correct everybody's misconceptions <laughs> <laughs> okay so my first one i was going to say i've just realized is immediately wrong because i was just going to say nocturnal yep but i know there's some that aren't <laughs> and live very long mm. lots of different feeding types okay some eat insects some eat fruit echolocation Yep. Okay. And small. <laughs> small. Okay. All right. So that's not a bad start. Those are all pretty common things that we hear about bats. Uh, in terms of where bats come from and how they originated, we actually don't know jack shit about this. So please become a bat biologist and do some work on this. Um, so the first fossil that we have for bats is actually a bat that already could fly. Um, 
Bats don't make great fossils. They're quite small and they have very fragile bones, so they don't fossilize well. So we have very little in terms of the fossil record. Um, what we do know is we ha currently now have two very distinct groups of bats. We have a bat group that split off much earlier that's called Megacoroptera, or used to be called Megacoroptera. It's now called Yin Coroptera because we love to change the names of things. Yeah. Um, and then we have a second group that evolved much later that's called Yang Coroptera now. It used to be called Microcoroptera. Um, so the main difference between those is you guys mentioned things like nocturnal and echolocation. So Yin Coroptera or Megacoroptera evolved much earlier and they're actually missing those things. Those bats are diurnal. They're what most people call like your big flying foxes, your big fruit bats. Those are going to be your bats that are primarily located in the old world. They're in Southeast Asia, there are some parts of Africa, India, the Pacific Islands. Um, and those bats are all actually diurnal. They're active during the day. A couple of them do have a very rudimentary echolocation, but it's not the supersonic echolocation that our microbats have. And then um, most of them are all actually going to belong to the same feeding guild. They're all fruit-eating bats, hence the common name right. of, of big fruit bats. Um, so those are the ones that you're most likely to see like online when you're seeing a bat eating a banana or you're seeing bats in zoos. So are they also called flying foxes? They yeah. are also called flying foxes, cool. yes. They do and have the little fox-like faces. They look quite like dogs. Yeah, yeah. they do. Sky yeah. puppies. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're very cute. Um, so that group we actually don't talk much about on this side of the world because we don't have them in the Americas at all. Um, mm. So Microcoroptor is the group that evolved later. Um, um, and there's quite a distinct difference between the two groups. Those are our nocturnal bats that do all echolocate. Um, and those are actually found on every continent except Antarctica. So they're very widespread. Mm. Um, you mentioned feeding guilds here in the tropics. We have literally every feeding guild you can think of for bats. As you get more temperate, uh, you start losing feeding guilds. And so when you get up into the US and the UK, or you get down towards the south in like Chile and Argentina, all of your bats are insectivorous, because those are the only ones that go all the way into the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Um, but here in the tropics, the main fielding, feeding guild is going to be fruit eating bats. Uh, so we have quite a lot of those, but as I said before, they're distinct from the old world fruit bats, like your flying foxes. Ours are a lot smaller. Most of them are from the family Philostomidae, which is our leaf-nosed bats. Um, they've got like a little leaf um, on their nose that makes them look a bit like a rhino. You've probably seen photos of them with this little pointy bit on the nose. Um, and that's where all of our like niche divergence has happened is mostly within that family. So within that family, we get fruit bats, we get insectivorous bats, we get nectivorous bats. We get um, bats that eat fish, bats that eat uh, meat, and bats that eat frogs. Uh, so basically a little bit of everything. Our vampire bats are also in that family. Those yeah. are ones that people love to talk yeah, about. Yeah. So any, any thoughts on vampire bats? Well, I mean, vampire bats, what do I know about vampire bats? I've seen videos of vampire bats scurrying behind. <laughs> like, they look amazing. And they're scurrying almost like little frogs. Just mm -hmm. like hopping behind um, uh, horses or cattle or things like that and like nipping at them. Yeah, so they're one of our few bats that can actually run. If you put them on the ground, that's actually the coolest way to release them is put them on the ground and watch them run away. Uh, um, there's there's some <laughs> studies done on like metabolism of vampire bats where they've actually put them on a little treadmill and you can like <laughs> th you can YouTube them like running on a treadmill. It's quite entertaining. So it's not what you think of when you originally think of a bat. Can they take off from the ground or do they have to climb back up and then... Yeah, drop. so that's very much going to depend on the species. Vampire bats specifically can take off from the ground. Most bats that are landing for their food, um, your frugivorous bats, your bats that are like gleaning insects from the vegetation, those can all take off from the ground. Your insectivorous bats are all hunting on the wing and they've got like a big long tail membrane. It's a bit like hauling around a wedding dress train. <laughs> those bats have to crawl up something uh, and drop down in order to take off. So when you release them, you have to stand up and give them some room to like get a drop down, which is why most of them have evolved actually to sleep upside down so that you are 
already starting in the right position to get that drop down. You don't have to climb up something to get away if you get startled awake. Ah, I always wondered why they slept upside down. <laughs> Are there any bats on that which sleep the the right way up? <laughs> the right way up. Yeah. Well, if you're We're a bat, the wrong way up. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on your perspective here. Um, so there are a few, but they're very much in the minority, and they're mostly ones that have evolved some other weird thing. Um, so the ones with the little suction cups on the wings that someone was asking oh, me about last yeah. night, they actually sweep, quote unquote, the right way up because the way that they sleep inside a little curled up plant leaf and it faces upwards towards the sun, and so they do face their head up when they sleep. But when they crawl out, they then drop off of that plant kind of upside down. So. Yeah. Now, one thing you mentioned there was about them being in the minority. Mm-hmm. So could you give us a sense of how many bat species there are? So at last count, we have crossed 1,400 bat species in the world, um, and we are still finding new ones. Um, there's probably going to be a new one coming out in the next couple of years that I personally know about that was recently Ooh, found in Central America. Exciting. So. Yeah, bat spoilers. <laughs> a, new, a new one coming out makes it sound like, <laughs> yeah. like you know, it's just been invented. Yeah. <laughs> just made it. I want to go back to bats that eat fish and meat. (laughs) Yeah. Like, what's going on there? So that's pretty unique to the tropics. Um, We've got two species of fishing bat that have evolved these massive hind feet. uh, And they essentially troll the water. So they fly just above the water and they drag. They've got these huge elongated claws. And they drag them in the water and they essentially just snag fish like they're trolling. Um, And then they'll scoop them up into the mouth. So those you find like throughout the Amazon, uh, they're adapted to like fairly slow moving lakes, rivers and estuaries. Um, And then our carnivorous bats is actually one of the main studied bats here in Calicmore. We have two species. We have um, the great greater false vampire bat, Vampirum spectrum, also called the spectral bat. You'll notice a lot of these bats have vampire names because people who came over were incredibly bad at identifying what a vampire bat was. So anything that had big teeth they thought was a vampire bat. And our vampire bats are all quite small. So we have a lot of false vampire bats, which are big, big bats with big teeth that are actually just carnivorous and they're just straight up eating other things. But somehow we feel like that's better than taking a bit of blood, yeah. just killing it somehow yeah. is, is, is a better yeah. option. That's true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've got the spectral bat and then we've got the woolly false vampire here. Um, and the woolly false vampire that's here in Caligmore is actually quite interesting. There's been a lot of work done on this particular group of them because they actually live in the ruins, the ruins here at Ormigero. And so they're quite easy to access and they've been fairly well studied. Uh, that's where we've gotten a lot of our diet studies from for those. Uh, so we know that those ones eat lizards, they eat birds, they eat small mammals. They'll occasionally take other bats. Um, the spectral bats we know a bit less about. There's actually a reward program here in Mexico. If you can find one of the roosts for them, uh, you get quite a good monetary oh. reward because they're trying to study them. Uh, but we know that they actually specialize in eating other bats. Um, so they, they are hunting much smaller bats. And then they also take birds and small mammals as well. I Right. There is a lot of work being done on this hot pole expedition. Yeah. There are a lot of different teams here. And I like bats quite a lot already so not to say i'm biased with this (laughs) sentence but i don't think there's any other team which can roll out as cool a sentence as there's a roost of carnivorous bats in the mayan ruins (laughs) (laughs) that's because bats are better (laughs) i think i'm gonna have to give you that one yeah (laughs) yeah i'll lay down my ornithology sword and say that's a pretty cool sentence (laughs) and they are i mean you showed us pictures of some of the ones you've caught these are like they're, they're like flying jaguars. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you described them as wolves, did you? Yeah, like basically picture sky? a flying fox and then give it a wolf's face yeah. with complete with the giant fangs. Yeah. <laughs> and they are hench. Like yeah. the muscles they're on the built. arm are incredible. Yeah. 
God, I'd love to see one of those. <laughs> well, we'll try to catch you one, but no guarantees. <laughs> <laughs> and with the fishing bats, how does a bat know where a fish is? So they're actually echolocating the ripples. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, they just got all the craziest superpowers and then they were like let's just stick them in a little flying mouse yeah <laughs> and they were just like let's make them live for really long let's give them this amazing sense let's yeah they're just wild animals yeah they're quite impressive they've got some pretty awesome immune systems as well they've got bats just have a ton of things going on there's so many side fields to study with bats that it's almost it's kind of a rabbit hole once you go down it yeah yeah so how sensitive is echolocation then so it is going to depend on the species. Yep. Um, most things are going to depend on the species just because we do have so much variety. Um, but especially your smaller insectivorous bats, you've got things that are eating like these little tiny midges that you can almost yep. barely see. And so those guys, they can echolocate just about anything. They can see spider webs in the forest. They can definitely see our mist nets. Um, we have some that you just don't catch in a mist net because they, they will just fly around mm-hmm. them. They're that acrobatic. Um, so most of what we catch is actually kind of our klutzier, like <laughs> less graceful bats, to be honest, yeah. uh, which is our fruit bats who are a bit bigger, a bit more lumbering. They don't have to be so graceful because they're not hunting on the wing. Um, but yeah, echolocation is really fine tuned. There's some cool videos, once again, if you go online and you look this up, where they can detect like an insect on the backside of a leaf where they're actually somehow detecting it like around the leaf. Oh, wow. Um, there's loads of studies going on trying to figure out exactly how how they're doing this because we, we have some idea of how echolocation works, but it's still somewhat a mystery to us as well. So let's just start putting superpowers on the board. Yeah. <laughs> they can fly. Yep. Yeah. They can echolocate. Yeah. They can, like, through water. You know. <laughs> and around leaves. Well, that was my next one. They can effectively <laughs> see round corners. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned their immune system. Mm-hmm. How good is that? It's incredible. Um, they can actually carry quite a lot of things, um, but they don't. They frequently don't get sick. Uh, so there's, there's lots of work going on around the world into, like, bat immune systems and how they can carry such high viral loads without exhibiting any symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a wide variety of viruses that are associated with bats. Um, and one of the reasons we're doing so much work on that is that you know, oftentimes a bat can test positive for something, but it doesn't actually have the illness. It just is carrying the viral load. And we would love to know how to do that um, as people just because, yeah, yeah we would yeah. we would like to also be able to carry a virus and not get sick yeah. from it. Uh, but that's yet another thing that we don't really know how it's working. Um, so, yeah, so, so lots of holes in our knowledge. Super-powered immune system. Super-powered <laughs> immune system's on the board. That's on the board. Yeah. Jack mentioned their lifespan. Mm-hmm. So... Now, looking at a bat, it's about the size of a mouse, and we know that some of them, some of them, some of them, sure, good point. But you know, similar sized things Mm -hmm. might live for a year, two years, something short. Bats. Yeah, so bats generally live into their 40s, at least the ones that we're aware of. Uh, Once again, this is a huge hole in our knowledge because we have very little data that only comes from a few captive bat populations. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of difficult to long-term mark bats in the wild. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of species that we don't have this data for, but we do know that they have to be quite long-lived because there's a thing called R-selected species and a thing called K-selected species. R-selected species are generally things that have a short lifespan, but they have large litter sizes. They reproduce very quickly. K-selected species these are things more generally associated with large mammals like elephants, oh. um, where they have one or two young, you know, at a very reduced rate, and so that you have to live a long time in order to replace your population. Mm-hmm. Bats are by far the smallest case selected species that we know of. Right. Where mm. at, at most, they're having two babies in a year. 
Um, there's, there's a couple of exceptions to that as always, but generally speaking at most two babies in a year. And so you have to be quite long lived in order to maintain a population when you can only have that few of young. And we think that's because, you know, obviously flight is very difficult when you're pregnant. So you can't be flying around carrying six babies. Basically it's mathematically impossible past a certain point. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Another one for the board. Yeah. That's (laughs) that's on the board. Long lived. Are there any other superpowers we maybe haven't touched on? Uh, so ability to fly with a lot of weight. So most mm-hmm. bats can eat their entire body weight in a night. And so they essentially double double their load. Wow. Um, and also I was showing somebody some pictures last night of a bat flying with its pups. Uh, so the mother bats are especially super powered. They can fly with just an incredible amount of weight. Like it seems like they can't even, I don't even know how they take off. <laughs> Bonkers. Is there anything they can't do? Swim? Uh, actually, they can oh, swim. Get out. <laughs> yeah, they can definitely swim. Um, they're not great swimmers. Uh, it depends the bat once again, but yeah, we do quite a lot of netting over water. And if you accidentally like drop one in the water, they they do like a, a crawl stroke with both wings. And yeah, they can definitely definitely get themselves to shore and they'll climb up something. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I wouldn't say they're great swimmers, but they definitely don't just you know like sink like a rock or something. Yeah. <laughs> now, one thing you mentioned was the immune system, mm-hmm. and of course, in the last few years, bats have hit the press a lot. They have. But not just with that particular thing, which maybe we won't talk about too much, (laughs) but I'm just wondering, is there anything which is actually really threatening bats at the moment in America or Europe? So bats are threatened by the same thing that's threatening most species, which is habitat loss. Mm. Um, So that's the biggest one around the world. Um, In addition to that, we've got some bat-specific things going on. So you did mention the the topic that we're not going to discuss, but especially in a lot of of places where there's less education, there was a lot of mass bat kills um, during that time period a few years ago, mostly just due to fear, um, Mm -hmm. even though those bats weren't actually carrying anything. So that happens quite a lot whenever we have some sort of an outbreak. There's always a lot of local places will go basically just burn down their bat caves or poison their bat caves, yeah, because they're afraid um, of getting sick. And so that's a big one. Um, The couple that are more, they're not completely confined to the developed world, but a bit more. Uh, Wind energy is actually one that Uh. is difficult for quite a few species of bats. Uh, So we are seeing quite high bat kills um, with some some wind projects and is there is there, what's the reason for that because birds struggle with it as well birds <laughs> yeah. don't like them either so ironically we found very different things uh, mm. especially in the US versus the UK uh, we're not really sure in some instances it seems like bats are actually attracted to turbines um, mm. and there's several different hypotheses floating around about that um, I've seen some papers where they're maybe potentially looking at them for roost sites mm. I've seen some papers where the smooth sides of the turbine they're confusing it actually with water and they're, tr- they're exhibiting drinking behavior along oh. the sides of the turbines uh, so we think there's probably multiple things going on and it probably depends the species um, but yeah so those are going up in a lot of migratory pathways and we have a lot of migratory bats that are really struggling with you know essentially they used to have a free flyway and now they have a flyway that's full of like all these blades turning and yeah. so there's just a lot more obstacles in their path as well yeah so and are there any diseases so disease wise um on this side of the world, we've actually been dealing with a fungus called white nose syndrome. Uh, well, the fungus itself is pseudo- pseudonomus destructans or something to that effect. Destructans, I definitely remember because we named it after it started killing all of our U.S. bats. Um, so it's actually a cave fungus that is native to Europe and Eurasia, and the bats over there have evolved with it, whereas our bats over here have not. And it primarily affects hibernating bats, so right now it's only an issue in temperate regions. Mm. As of yet, we haven't documented it being a problem in the tropics, um, but it has massively 
caused major like bat die-offs, um, especially in the eastern half of the United States. Right. And so now it's recently in the last couple of years gotten into some of the migratory colonies in Texas that migrate all the way down to South America. Right. So now there's a bit of concern that the tropics aren't really an area of concern because bats don't really hibernate in the tropics. But once you get down into Chile and Argentina um, and you get back down into those temperate zones, you do have cave hibernating bats again. And so now the concern is that the tropical bats are going to spread it into those locations and those mm. bats are going to have the same issue as the ones in the northern U.S. where they didn't evolve with it. Uh, so there's a lot of monitoring and there's a lot of people working on that right now. Right. And what sort of impact have you seen numbers-wise? Uh, so when I first started doing bat work in the U.S., it was actually right as White Nose hit and I was working in an area that didn't have it yet. And it was, I'd say an average bat night was probably 40 to 50 bats. And since then, we've upped the amount of nets that we put out and now an average bat night is less than 10. Wow. So yeah. it's it's definitely dropped numbers all over the place. And some areas have seen a full like 98 to 99 percent die off. Wow. Jesus. So. So two last questions. Mm-hmm. One, the important one is why should we care for bats? <laughs> mm. So that is the big one. So those areas that we were talking about with the massive bat die off, the main thing you're looking at there is insectivorous bats. And so you're talking a massive loss in insect control for your agricultural areas. Yeah. Uh, there's also a lot of projects right now with like rice fields and cornfields in the tropics where instead of spraying pesticide, we're putting in bat boxes because oh. they're a huge natural pest control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, we talked about bats eating their body weight in insects a night. These insectivorous colonies, oftentimes you have millions of individuals. And so you're talking you know literally millions of pounds or millions um, of insects consumed every night so they're a huge agricultural boon those ones Um, in tropical areas they serve two additional purposes our fruit bats um, are actually the primary seed dispersers if there's a disruption event in the forest so if there's like a clear cut or a massive fire uh, birds and monkeys and there's lots of other things that are associated with seed dispersal they actually tend to stay around the edges of established forest whereas Mm. bats will fly over those big open areas Uh, so a lot of these places are actually originally reseeded by flying bats yeah Um, And then our nectivorous bats is the one, the classic one that everybody loves because they they pollinate some night blooming flowers that are bat specific. And the big one there is tequila. So they pollinate the agave plant. So with Uh, no bats, there's no tequila. And we actually did, that bat was quite endangered up until just a few years ago. It just got taken off the endangered list uh, because there's been loads of work done with that one uh, because obviously nobody wanted to lose their tequila and their mezcal. (laughs) So that's that's the big one. That's the poster child. That's actually one of our great success stories is we've we've reestablished a corridor of agave for them to migrate through and there's a great um cooperative agreement between the u.s and mexico for those bats yeah if only all endangered animals could help us make alcohol (laughs) then we'd just save them all (laughs) so before i hand over to jack um for the last question just to round up completely super powered (laughs) reforest areas make alcohol immune systems which can fix everything and pest control like nothing else yeah so i look forward to your bird you know <laughs> repost exactly but birds Jack- are far inferior oh <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna let it slide actually i'm gonna let it slide for this time um, but the final question that we've been asking everybody the final question is ashley what do you think is the biggest animal you could take in a fight Oh, man. I swore a long time ago not to work with things bigger than me for this exact reason. (laughs) Uh, The biggest animal I could take in a fight... Probably that spectral bat because I quite struggled with that last one I caught and it almost won. And that, <laughs> and that is big, isn't it? It's the, yeah. It's the, is it the biggest bat in the it's Americas? It's the biggest bat in the Americas, yeah. And so it's, I think that one weighed like maybe 120 grams. They're, they're not that large, but they do have a big wingspan. It's about a meter. Yeah. So, yeah. And the teeth on them. And the te- it's a flying wolf of the sky. And yeah. this is one that you've actually wrestled with. Yep. yep. So you've actually got that real world experience. <laughs> and came out on top. That time. Yeah. That time. <laughs> you should see 
see the other guy. <laughs> Ashley, thank you very much. Thanks. For the safety of the bats and the people, the bat teams in Calakmul work in pairs. So after we'd had a good briefing from Ashley, it was time to sit down with her partner in crime before both of them would bring us face to face with a bat later that evening. So we are joined by Zule. Yep. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. <laughs> so Zule, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you're doing here? Yeah, sure. Um, well, my name is Zulema Campos. I'm from El Salvador in Central America, the most country in there, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I've just started bats um, a couple years ago, eight years now. So that's it. I think I'm in the um, bat conservation program in El Salvador. Oh, cool. Mm. What's the conservation project in El Salvador? The conservation program in El Salvador, it's kind of, um, it's one of the like uh, projects that are almost in Latin America and the Caribbean. Cool. We have one of them. In Mexico, they have another one, and each country of Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, they have an, a, a bat conservation program. Cool. How many bats does, uh, not how many bats, but how many bat species are in El Salvador, or what's Central America like for... In El Salvador, I have that number, it's 70 species mm-hmm. mm. right now, and we just have to confirm some ones that um, are obviously uh, kind of in the records of of bioacoustics but we're not sure so we are just making some kind of investigation for that cool in the uk it's something like 15 to 20 or something like that 18 18 18. okay there we go so it's a lot more but one of the species in the uk there is only one individual bat of that species really in the uk the greater mouse-eared bat yeah and it just lives on its own in a a cave in a tunnel it migrates to well, it's a hibernation roost yeah, in the UK. Okay. Yeah. They don't the, know where it goes in the summer. No, but that's so cool. on the south coast. So it's just one tunnel, which is kept secret. And every winter, the same bat just roosts there. It's roosting there. Wow, that's amazing. For us, um, we are kind of all, all... It's like kind of the same weather in all the tropics. So we usually just share a lot of bats yeah. with the different countries so for us so it's very cool do you have similar bats are there similar bats here in mexico than there are in el salvador yeah usually we have um the same type of bats but uh, now with all the investigation that they are doing um like in genetics and something like that they are separating um species that they are here and from guatemala or from el salvador go down um, in South America it's another species ah so they're starting to split yeah split them based on genetics but they look the same they look actually the same I think that's cheating (laughs) I think that's just people wanting to describe a species but yeah it's awful and maybe the taxonomists just hate us or something like that because they're changing names each year yeah I, I think we were looking at the book and a lot of the names and genuses have changed and bats are being moved yeah. around and reshuffled and yeah, yeah. like yeah there's a lot of that going on cool and how do you think because bats around the world have maybe not the best reputation with the public no. no what's it like in central america or el salvador well i think that um in central america in general they have like um a bad and good reputation because usually 
um, all the bad conservation programs we work with um, um, education mm -hmm. in the schools and even with um, neighbors or something like that neighborhoods that just called us that they have like a colonies living uh, living in their in their houses or something like that uh. so we usually go there and we just um, talk with them about bats and all the the things that they're good of and we try to change that mentality mm -hmm. so Uh, we just made an investigation that it just um, start from El Salvador, but just go down in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, and uh, it's, it's almost 51% of the people that we just uh, interview that they have a very good um, oh. like kind of uh, vision of bats. Yeah. yeah. But in, in the other 49%, they are kind of, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure because they have rabies and COVID and, but all, all of us know that it's not true. And yeah. we just, we just have to, to work with that. Can you tell us about the, the COVID thing then? Because, you know, lots of people say that COVID came from bats. Yeah, no, definitely that's not true because we don't have any uh, paper, any, any investigation that just confirm it at, at 100%. Because the thing that you could um, say that the bad uh, coronavirus that they have, it's uh, 99% uh, accurate with the one that we just had. That doesn't tell you nothing mm -hmm. if you're talking about viruses and genomic. Mm. So it's kind of uh, difficult to say because you're you, the thing that they are doing is blaming all the species of yeah. bats and even the pangolins and, yeah. and and all kind of species because we just want to know what ha what, what was yeah. the origin of that. But well, you you don't know, so just yeah. blaming a lot of species is is the kind of thing that. It doesn't work for yeah. us. And in El Salvador or Central America, were people like... Because in the UK, there's not that many bats, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So people were like, ah, scared of them and blaming them. And but you, don't, yeah. you don't see them for half you a year in the UK. You don't see them that much. Yeah. But here, there are obviously much more species, many more bats and much more present. So were yeah. people actually like you know attacking them or destroying yeah. roosts and yeah, stuff like that yeah some of people in parts of uh, in latin america in general mm -hmm. um they were just uh destroying roosts or even uh some people just go and set fire to roosts with wow. the bats in there oh, oh my god so it was kind of a very difficult time even um in that time of the quarantine all the things just happened in that time yeah oh, okay. so it was kind of Even if we try to go and and help somehow to the bats in there, we we weren't be able. You, you weren't allowed yeah, to. We, we yeah, we weren't allowed to go and. Yeah, yeah. But now that quarantine has finished, is it stopping? And it's kind of because um, we tried to go like um, to go more um in the social media mm -hmm. just to try to to reduce all the hate that, that they were yeah. receiving so um it it was quite calmed down just like um like a couple years ago yeah. but there there are people that doesn't like it and something like that but now that it's kind of normal the normal yeah. life just returned yeah. Yeah. i think they're they're kind of safe yeah So one of the bats you have in Central America yep. is very famous. Oh yeah, it's the vampire bat. Yeah. Is it your favorite bat? 
Yeah, yeah, it is. It's my favorite, but definitely because um, all the people have like an stigmatized um, kind of view of the vampire bats. We have three species in 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 the tropics, um, and the three species just eat blood, obviously. Yeah. So um, the common vampire bat it's my favorite because it's the one that uh, you catch a lot. Yeah. Even yeah. in El Salvador, uh, here in Mexico, I. I I'm sure that they just cut it a lot, just in the places that they have like cows, sheep, and something like yeah. that, and horses. So that's where they're getting the blood from. Yeah, the, the livestock. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because well, the human being just go and put <laughs> some animals yeah. just near them. Obviously, yeah. it's free food for yeah. them. So yeah, but um, if they're just like more in the forest or something like that, uh, they usually go and just go for. The other mammals like tapir or javelis, I'm not sure. Peccaries and things. Yeah, yeah, things like that. And how 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 big is a vampire bat? Because we say you know it's sucking blood out of a goat, but it's yeah. not it's not shriveling it up, is it? It's you know there's plenty of blood left in it. No, they're so so tiny. They're yeah. like, uh, well, I'm not that that yeah. that big in person, but <laughs> they're like uh, the size of my hand. It's yeah. so tiny, definitely. And they just eat like. Uh, a tiny spoon of blood at night. And with your bat work going and looking at roosts around, yeah. you mentioned one particular roost that was yeah. near the sea in a cave. Yeah. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, uh, in El Salvador, we have a lot of caves that are just like in the, in the mountain parts, just mm-hmm. near the sea. So we have a lot of these kind of caves that they just uh, get surrounded about the sea, and sometimes uh, when the when the caves just go, the waves just go up. Mm. Um, uh, the the caves are filled with water. Yeah. So we have uh, colonies of bats living in there, like in the air cameras that that the caves have. Yeah. So it's kind of cool because you can go and netting when the cave is just without the water and. It's it's cool because you yeah. have a lot of species in there, and you have only a very small amount of time to do the work, because the tide and the water is going to yeah. come back in. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> that that's kind of 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 uh, a, a a time work because in in the time that you have like a couple of hours just to do yeah. um, the netting thing and just untangled all the beds and yeah. and all the things. I can't swim, so it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of a very difficult time for me because I'm I'm just working for my life, just untangle all the bats on time and just go away from that from that cave. Get out of the cave. <laughs> so and when the tide is fully in, so the bats can only go in and out of that cave when the when the tide is out and the water is yeah. away. Yeah. Wow. We don't know if maybe they they have like a kind of another way to go out because well they they are very tiny. You yeah. Yeah, so maybe there is like a little holes uh, in between oh, and yeah. they can go uh, yeah. like out in there, but it's not, well, we didn't see it. So yeah, we, we just have that question in, in the mind. Luckily tonight, we just have to miss net in the yeah. forest. Yeah, there's no sea caves yeah. for us to go <laughs> yeah. into. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But before we go miss netting, yeah. I think we've got one last question. We do. Yeah. And it's a big one. Sule, yeah. What's the biggest animal you think you could take in a fight? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the biggest animal I can take in a fight. 
think about it. One v one. No weapons. Yeah, no yeah. tools, no weapons. Wow. Just bare That's hands. hard. And then when you beat it, you can taxidermy it. Because you do taxidermy, yeah. don't you? I, I do some taxidermy <laughs> uh, in the in the Natural Museum of El Salvador. So, wow. Well, mm, I would say an ant eater. Oh, okay. Yeah. What, like the giant ones? With no, the, no, we have the, the we ones. Have, no, the... we have the, the, the smallest ones. <laughs> 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 so, for that, the reason I'm just telling that one okay. because there's the smallest in us. <laughs> <laughs> How small is it? Uh, you it's know, kind is it... of like this. Big. Okay. It's like I'm not sure so how maybe to, like to make the measure. Like, like, a, like a medium like dog? Like a medium dog, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like okay. a medium dog, kind of. The bigger ones, but yeah. not that big. All right. And then it will be on display in the Museum of El Salvador. Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because we have only one and it's uh, like, uh, like a tiny one. Yeah. So we, we want a bigger one. So you need a new one. <laughs> yeah, Perfect. Perfect. It, that's going to be it. <laughs> All right. Sulay, thank you very much, no, and you. we're excited to see some bats. Yeah, thank hopefully you. we're going to catch some. So, as you can see, these guys have quite big teeth. These have what we call our chomp bite. Uh, these are the ones that carry the little fig in their mouth. So they've got these big teeth because they'll dig them into the fig and then they'll actually fly with the fig back to the roost. So it's a fruit-eating bat. Yeah. This is a fruit-eating bat. This is our biggest fruit-eating bat that we catch um, in Calic Moor. And it is quite big. How, uh, you yeah. know, it's about the size of... It sort of fills your palm, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's hand size. Yeah. We're going to put him in a different bag. Because this one, it's too, it's too heavy. So mm -hmm. it's easier to take the measurements in that one. And then, if one of you wants to weigh him, you want to just hold by the strings because he can bite through the bag. Um, which I've got gloves on, but you don't, so... <laughs> so don't get bitten? Yeah, yeah. don't yeah. get bitten. Please don't get bitten. Yep, so that's just a clip-on, and then you'll read the red line. Mm -hmm. Yep. With the pasola. Yep, with yep. the scale. 84. 84? It's 82. Okay. Yes. No, 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 82. So we'll actually do a math problem with these. We'll do, obviously this is the weight of the bat and the bag combined. Mm -hmm. And then after I take the bat out of the bag, I'll hand you the bag back and you can weigh the bag. And then we'll get bat weight from that. I uh, know. Oh, oh, that's look at that's that. a man wow. straight open. <laughs> He's just waiting, something. waiting. Yeah, that's a great photo, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, sometimes if you pet them on the back of the head, they'll open their mouth over real wide. <laughs> so cool. we talked about the Philostomidae family earlier all having this little leaf nose you can see he's giving us quite a good look at that um, a couple of ways that we know that this is a fruit bat most of our fruit bats have these little stripy faces so you can see these little white stripes on top of his head uh, when he's not trying to yeah. take my finger off um, some of them just have that um, white stripes like um, more faded yeah. so you can see it some of them are quite hard will. to see the stripes but this one it's the one that it's like kind of my favorite because it's very visible. Yeah. Are the stripes, stripes do anything? Is there a reason the fruit eating mm. bats have stripes? Yes. So fruit eating bats generally tend to have stripes because most of our fruit eating bats are also tent making bats. Mm -hmm. um, and so they will make little tents out of the leaves and the light filtering through the leaves creates a stripy pattern. So it's similar to like a tiger. It's a bit of camouflage because kind of their, their heads will be facing down. So if you're a predator looking up underneath the leaf, 
and you're looking at those stripes, it breaks up the outline of the pattern. That's very cool. Yeah. That's yeah. very, very cool. I had no idea about that. So, um, the other way we can tell this is a fruit-eating bat is we talked a little bit earlier about different uh, evolutionary traits in bats. So any bat that's landing for its food is going to have a pretty reduced tail membrane. So you can see on this guy, he's got basically little individual legs. He doesn't have like this long trailing wedding dress type tail like we see on our insectivorous bats. That means this is a bat that can land and take off. So that's another indicator that this is a bat that's that's fruit eating. You can also see there's quite a lot of hair here um, on the uropatagium, which is the tail membrane. That's an identification characteristic of this bat. So we do have two um, main large fruit eating bats in Calicmul. We have the great fruit-eating bat, and we have the Jamaican fruit-eating bat. And the way you tell those two apart is the Jamaican fruit-eating bat has very indistinct face stripes. It's quite gray as opposed to brown, yeah. and it has a, what we call a nearly naked tail membrane, which means it just has a few tiny hairs. Mm-hmm. The great fruit-eating bat has very defined stripes. It's usually brown rather than gray, and it has a hairy, a hairy. tail membrane. Mm-hmm. So this is our great fruit-eating bat. Yeah. Um, this is our biggest fruit-eating bat in Calicmul. And we'll do a forearm measurement. So the reason we take a forearm measurement is because for bats, by the time the young are old enough to fly, this forearm bone is fully grown. And so within species, the forearm range is usually only a few millimeters, like maybe five or six for the Mm -hmm. species as a whole. So it's an ID characteristic for the species, and it also holds true for both juveniles and adults, because by the time the juveniles are old enough to fly, this bone is fully formed. So it's a measurement you can take for all bats, um, and it helps with ID. And it's also just a general body characteristic measurement. Uh, so for this guy, the calipers got 64.0, which is quite a big forearm. Uh, most of our insectivorous bats are going to have forearms in the 30s range. Um, Even uh, some of the insectivorous ones just have less. Yeah, smaller. Uh, the big carnivorous ones will be in the hundreds, so they're quite oh, yeah. a bit bigger than these. And would, would the big carnivorous bats, would they tackle something? Would they eat? One? This one's probably a bit big okay. for what one of our carnivorous bats would handle. Um, to my knowledge, that we have not found them eating this bat. Their mm-hmm. favorite bat is probably about half the size of this one. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this one's probably a bit big for that, but mm-hmm. definitely owls, snakes, they're going to have some other predators. Um, so you can see when we stretch this wing out, we've got a few things going on. You guys can see these little white um, scars in here. Scars. And you guys can also see in the backlight of my headlamp, you can see the blood vessels. So bat wings are literally just two pieces of skin uh, put mm-hmm. together with some blood vessels in between. Yeah. And that's all are, they are. The wings are extraordinary, aren't they? Yeah, they're really cool. So now you that I've got... It. Yeah. There we go. That's a much better view. Um, so the other thing that we look at for age on bats is we look at the joints. Um, yeah. So young bats, there's still a lot of cartilage in the joints and you can actually see light through them. And then as the bat gets older, the joints ossify. They, the cartilage turns to bone. And so an adult bat, which is what this one is, you get these rounded joints and you also can't see light through them. There's a nice little diagram here so you can see mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. Yeah. So this is an adult bat and then the juveniles will have like these little more elongated joints with some space in it um, that you can see when you backlight it with a headlamp. So this is an adult bat. Right. Um, and then we'll flip it over. And when you say adult bat, you know, how, how old could it be? Um, so mm. there's no way to age yeah. um, adult bats mm. that we have found yet. So essentially it means it's more than a year old. Mm-hmm. Um, the oldest known bat that we know of is in its 30s. So it 46. could be 
or 40s, sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, so wow. they are quite long-lived, but in the field, it's there's we don't have a way to tell. So. Yeah. Um, I have caught a few bats, actually, that have, like, very worn-down teeth. Like, I caught a carnivorous mm-hmm. bat one time that just had, like, rounded-off teeth oh. instead of sharp ones. <laughs> and I feel like that bat was quite old, yeah. but I still have no way of, you know, it's just completely anecdotal. Um, so for this one, what do you guys think for, for sex? Oh, <laughs> it's I mean, quite obvious. Yeah, so this is quite an obvious yeah. one. Some of our bats are surprisingly difficult to tell, um, but this one is male. That one's not surprisingly difficult. No, it is not. Yeah. It's quite this, surprising, though. This, this species is quite easy. Um, so for males, we only have two reproductive statuses. We have active and inactive. Mm-hmm. So when the males are out looking for a mate, uh, the testicles will actually drop down, and they're very readily they're visible. visible. This one, we can't see any testicles at all, so they're currently tucked up internally. So this is what we would call inactive Um, and then for females as usual we're a bit more complicated so there's four statuses for females there's inactive which is we can't see any reproductive signs going on there's pregnant Mm -hmm. uh, which is an obvious one and then there's lactating or nursing uh, where you can see like a bare area around the nipple and then there's post lactating which is where the kind of the milk has dried up and the hair started growing back over that area and so if we had a female bat we would be looking for those as well Um, What else do we need? So adult, male, inactive. Yep, Yep, that should be it. So this guy's calmed down quite a bit. So let me turn him round where he can only get a hold of me. I can see his mouth going. If we had a and a bat detector would we be hearing him making noises so right now right this second no but mm-hmm. earlier yes so i can feel him vibrating when he's echolocating and oh. when we get ready to let him go i'll show you the signs to look for his little nose leaf will vibrate and his ears will start twitching but at the moment i've got his head tucked in my glove so if you would like with yeah the wings are quite a weird texture so <laughs> if anybody can come up with a better descriptor for this i would love it because the only thing i've managed to come up with grosses everybody out it feels like if you've ever had a really bad sunburn and you peel uh, off you like a big old set of skin yeah. it's the exact same it's feeling it's kind of the same skin with this that's cool yeah, yeah a thin sheet of rubber is a pretty good description so soft. Yeah, they are quite soft the fur is amazingly soft and the wing is yeah, oh, it's I don't really so. Know how to describe that. The wing sunburnt is sunburnt skin. I'm telling you, it's the only descriptor. Somewhere between sunburnt skin <laughs> and a balloon that has lost a little bit of air. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know that that makes it sound any better. Oh, I didn't say I was going to make it better. <laughs> All right, so. And is that is that the, the thumb? Yep. So yep. this bit sticking yep, out is, is the, the thumb. thumb. If you open the yep. wing, it's just the same um, thing that's your... So you can see forearm, you can see wrist, you can see thumb and finger one, two, three, and the pinky is the really long one. The long one. It's just a big hand. Yep. Yep. They fly with jazz hands. That's what everybody (laughs) says. So So now that I've got his face back out in the open, Yep, okay. See, there he goes. See how his ears started twitching? And now his little nose leaves vibrating. He's also vibrating. Oh, yeah. This is him echolocating. He's looking around. So it doesn't need to open its mouth to no, echolocate? No. Uh, they can emit through the nose and the mouth as well. Wow. Um, but the reason they have this nose leaf is because a lot of our bats do an, a nasal echolocation. Mm-hmm. And so the nose leaf helps to focus it and they can actually like twitch that nose leaf and they can actually direct it direct a bit. The um, they can also turn their head too. Yeah, and just to describe when we're talking about the nose leaf, it's, you know, it's like a leaf-shaped satellite dish on the front of its face, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> kind of a skin shape. Yeah. A lot of people like say it looks like a little rhino horn, but it's, yeah. yeah, it's like a little flap of skin here. He doesn't yeah. want to touch it. And that just mm. helps direct the... 
and the catch goals. the echolocation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you'll find a lot of variation in like size and shape of these, and a lot of times it has to do with like the habitat that bat is navigating through and or what its primary source of food is. Mm. Mm. Um, they've adapted like different different variations on the same general design. Yeah. So, and then you get some that are quite reduced. Like our vampire bats are part of this family, but their nose leaf is so reduced as to almost not be visible. So another way that we can tell that these bats are adult is we talked about that this is living tissue. It's not dead tissue, the wing, like your, mm. your hair, your nails. So you can see all these little white spots in here. So that's actually scarring where this guy has had a hole in the wing and it's healed back up. Um, sometimes when we're doing genetic work, we'll actually punch a small hole in the wing uh, mm. because to take like a tissue sample. They actually heal quite quickly. Um, so especially these like slightly bigger, slightly klutzier bats, they kind of do crash into things a bit. And so they do damage their own wings more than you would think they do. Yeah. Um, but it only takes them like a few weeks to heal up, um, you know, about a half centimeter size hole. Uh-huh. Um, and I've seen them with like this entire membrane like ripped where it looks like maybe an owl grabbed yeah. them and just like ripped the whole thing. Even and they the can fingers. heal that up as well. Really? Yeah, yeah the, the, the fingers. The uh, some of these ones, they can broke the, mm-hmm. um, some of them and they just healed. It's probably that um, the bad it's... Uh, if they broke the forearm, yeah, that it, that is a be, uh, a biggest problem, and usually the bat dies. Yep. Because mm-hmm. it, it can be able, but for, yeah. for the fingers, they can. They fly can amazingly even. still fly yeah. with broken fingers. Wow. Like it's insane. And the bones in the fingers are so thin. Yeah, they are they're, so they're very thin, thin, very fragile. That's yeah. Yeah. Uh, bats don't often injure themselves in the net. I'd say it's maybe one out of about every thousand yeah, bats that you true. catch. Maybe mm. maybe even less. But yeah, if if they do get injured, it's usually a finger bone. Mm. Yeah, so that's the and that's why you need to know what you're doing. To <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> knowing what you're doing, taking them out is critical for that because yeah. yeah, you can damage those little bones. As someone who takes birds out of nets, the thought of taking bats out terrifies me. See, I'm the opposite. <laughs> birds have feathers and they get in the way, and I can't see what I'm doing. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's true. <laughs> we yep. do have a bit of sugar water. Do we have the syringe? We yeah, can see if this one will take here. And so we always feed our nectivorous bats because they're they have a fast metabolism like a hummingbird. So we always give them a bit of a sugar boost. But a lot of times our fruit ones will take it as well. And so I'm we give them sure a bit of a treat just to help with um like the energy that they expend in the net. And so this is basically just a sugar water solution. And we'll give them a bit of it to drink before they go. That thing about the stripes on the face being mm-hmm. camouflaged from the ground up mm-hmm. is just amazing. Yeah, yeah. that's why there's like, if you open up the bat book, there's like two whole pages of stripy face bats. Yeah. They're right. also conveniently the two whole pages of tent making bats Yeah, that like all live under leaves. And so that's the, so the going I- thought process is that that's primarily what it's for. Could you just actually explain what a tent making back is? Back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so tent making bats, what they do is they actually obviously make their own tents um, and they do that by, they chew on the underside of leaves. They don't chew all the way through, but they'll like kind of crimp them so that they fall down and form like essentially a tent around them. Uh, The most classic one does like banana leaves. It chews like down the spine of a banana leaf so that both sides fall down and it makes like a a classic like A-frame style tent. Um, Here in Calicmore, we don't have those style of leaves, like we don't have banana trees here. Um, but there's like a big, uh, like hand shaped one. And so basically they'll chew the ends of the leaves so that they almost form like a claw. They like fall Mm, down around it. And so they'll chew like each individual leaf, like a a piece across the rib to make the rib collapse. 
And so these bats actually have to move homes every few days because their leaf eventually, like, it's not good for the leaf, it dies. And so every few days they have to, like, go cut a new leaf and they'll, like, migrate to a new little home. So they move around on the landscape quite a lot. If you know what you're looking for, you can actually sometimes find the tents. Um, These guys roost quite high up, so we don't normally see tents for them. Mm. Um, But there are some tent-making bats that roost, like, much lower to the ground and you, you can find, that's one way you can find them in the forest when you're not netting is you can look for the the tents that they've chewed. Wow. Here it is. Ah, perfect. So we'll see if this guy will take a little bit of sugar water. Sometimes the fruit ones will take it and sometimes they're like, oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Is he going for it? Yeah. He's going for it. He's yeah. lapping it up out of the syringe. Yeah, look at that tongue. <laughs> It just gives him a bit of an energy boost and maybe makes up for a fruit that he might not have gotten to eat while we're harassing him. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a bit nice for them to make sure that at least he gets one good meal tonight. Oh, he's loving it. Still going. Yeah. He loves yeah, it. Normally loves we it. give them as much as they'll take. They'll they'll eventually hit a point where they're like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> you can please stop. But he's not. No, he's still, well, maybe. Yeah, no. there we go. Once he finds out this is on the menu, he's going to be straight back in that net. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so that's a curious topic of discussion. We get asked that quite a lot is how often you recapture bats. Mm. So bats are incredibly smart. It's very rare, unless it's a juvenile bat, because they're young. They're like teenagers, and so they've got that kind of stupid teenager mentality. (laughs) But um, most of the time, you will not catch a bat twice, and you'll almost never catch a bat twice in the same net. Uh, If you do catch a bat twice, it's almost always in a different net. And I'm personally convinced they go back and tell everybody at home not to fly that way. Um, So in the U.S., we're actually restricted. You can't, if you're doing any sort of survey, like an official survey for um, endangered bats or anything, you actually can't net the same site more than two Uh, nights in a row because it's so well documented that they'll just stop flying that area. Yeah. And I think this is probably a good time to say that, um, Roddy, me and you were talking about was it yesterday that I caught a single bird seven times in yeah. one morning uh, <laughs> so um, yeah. you know I think bats may have one of yeah point for bats <laughs> yeah not something we see with bats no. um, a little bit yeah I've definitely <laughs> never caught an individual bat more than twice mm. um, we do frequently do like a little mark um, but here it's normally you can tell like from the forearm and like mm-hmm. if you have an exact match of forearm yeah. and stuff you can normally tell if it's the same individual and also they have quite individual little stripey patterns you'll get some with very clear stripes and some with less clear stripes and so you can normally tell um, but we also do occasionally like mark them with fingernail polish or a hair clip mm-hmm. um, especially if we're catching quite a few in one night mm. but yeah normally they're smart enough that you don't catch them twice <laughs> all right somebody wants to let this guy go one of you guys can release it so we'll give you a super heavy duty glove yeah and we'll stand up somewhere so some bats you can release from um like a flat surface this bat's one that can take off from a flat surface no. if this was an insectivorous bat we would have to do it somewhere where he can get a drop so um, so we've got bear one of the students who's yeah, yeah. going to be so releasing we'll just have you stand bat. here and hold your hand out straight yep towards the forest and all I'm going to do is I'm going to set him on your hand, and I'm going to count to three. It's like a ceremony. Yep. <laughs> and I'm going to let go of him. So just hold your hand out flat. Okay. All right. One, two, three. So you can see him echolocating. See how he's oh. his ears are twitching. He's looking around. He's looking to see if there's oh, anything in his way before he takes off. Off into the night. <laughs> We've spoken to a couple bat scientists already Mm -hmm. but there's one more we wanted to check in on there is one more exactly welcome molly hello thank you for having me 
no worries. Listener to the show, Molly, I'd like to put in there. Because you've heard of us before, haven't you? You've heard I of the have, show before. Yes. Which is exciting to come all the way to the Mexican jungle and find someone who's listened to our ramblings. Yeah, that's the sound of Jack's ego exploding. Yeah. Because he also got recognised for his Instagram. I wasn't going to mention that one. <laughs> I was going to, but, you know, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Even the birds are loving the Instagram. Even the brown jays are on board with it. But, Molly, can you explain? We've introduced you, obviously, to do with the bats, but can you explain a little bit about who you are and what you do here? Um, yeah, so obviously I'm Molly um, <laughs> and I'm from the UK and Argentina and I've been working with bats for about five years and I really love neotropical bats so I really wanted the opportunity to get to know them in a different part of the world to where I'd worked before and also do some engagement with students so that's why I decided to apply to Opwell and yeah, I've been working in the Mexican jungle now for just over a month yeah. with the bats and it's been brilliant. Fantastic. So where else have you worked in the world with bats? Um, I've worked in the UK and Argentina specifically. Yeah, so you mentioned you're from the UK and Argentina. Mm-hmm. Which, when when were you living in Argentina? Um, so I lived in Argentina from the ages of 12 to 18, but I've been going back ever since. Uh, and yeah, living there for like about six months-ish and then going back to the UK. So have you been doing bat work there as well? Yes, I have. Oh, yeah. Nice. And is it similar species to what you're finding here? Um, some of them are similar and some of them are quite different. Um, but I think because they, we've got so very similar families, they feel quite familiar. Mm. So because I kind of know the ones that I'm used to, it kind of gives me a jumping like off point, I guess, to identify the ones here, Yeah, which is really cool. And did you start your bat work life in Argentina or in the UK? Um, a bit of both, I guess. My dad had a consultancy in the UK and I started working for him when I was 10, okay. doing bat <laughs> surveys. <laughs> Is that legal? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> what, were you, what were you doing when you were 10? I was just going on surveys with him, but I would be on one side of the building counting them out and he'd uh-huh. be on the other. And I'd have my little bat detector. I'm going to say that's a smart use of resources yeah. from yeah. your dad. I had to invoice him as well. I was like, what's an invoice? <laughs> he was like, we've got... <laughs> drawn in crayon. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. No, he made me type them up on the computer and then print them out. <laughs> that's proper business yeah business yes. sense exactly but if so how then do you actually become because it's very skilled getting them out of the nets and everything mm-hmm. else so how how does one if anyone's listening who wants to get involved with bat work so i'd say find any kind of local society or research project or anybody that's interested in bats so there are lots of different organizations around the world with which work with bats so i guess the most known one in the uk would be the bat conservation trust mm-hmm. um, but there are also loads of local bat groups and they do all sorts of things for bats so if you're based in the uk i'd say that's the best way to get into bats find your local bat group and just start going on surveys and you'll very quickly meet people that do misnetting or harp trapping and yeah or bat care even that's a really good way to start getting handling experience with bats yeah for me it was a bit more unusual i was in argentina at the time and i did a school project on bats on bat echolocation and i didn't know anybody in argentina that knew about bat echolocations and there isn't a key to bat echolocations of argentina so i got in touch with the bct and they then put me in touch with somebody in argentina who Uh. was doing a project on it and then i started working for her so that's kind of how i jumped into the world of bat handling 
Fantastic. And do you need a special license in order to be able to handle bats and take them out of the nets and everything else? Um, it depends a little bit. So if you're working with somebody that already has those licenses, there are four classes of license in the UK. If you're under their supervision, you don't need one. But if you were to go off and do it by yourself, you would need one. Mm. So I've done all my training now for class three and class four, and hopefully I'm going to get examined on it when I go back to the UK and Ooh. be able to mm. do it for myself. I like how the way you got into bats in Argentina was to go through <laughs> through the UK <laughs> and then back to Argentina yeah. and that's how you got involved I think I phoned up as well and it was just pure fluke that the person on the phone knew this person in Argentina oh, oh wow and then I emailed her and she actually happened to have her in nature reserve in Argentina where she was doing bat research that's and cool. she was like come come and join me and I did and it was great <laughs> that's really cool you mentioned bat care there mm-hmm. Roddy Am I right in thinking you were somewhere along the ladder of back care <laughs> at one stage in your life? I was one of the people Molly would have called at the Bat Conservation Trust. Mm-hmm. I worked at the Bat Conservation Trust on the National Bat Helpline, <laughs> which is a thing. Responding to the signal in exactly, the sky. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, yeah, a lot of people phoning up to say that their cat has caught a bat. Oh. And what do they do? Yeah. Or, you know they've plugged a hole in the roof and suddenly there's bats in their house what do they do yeah or they want to put an extension on their building and don't realize that they're all protected what do they do right so yeah a lot of bat chat so your job was to like advise them on advise yeah i never got the um what happens if someone phones you up looking to do bat work in argentina (laughs) training though so i don't know if i'd have been the best person to answer that particular phone call maybe a good job molly didn't yeah Yeah. get in touch with you yeah exactly (laughs) can we hear a bit about your time working with bats in argentina then Mm -hmm. because we were just sat down having lunch together and jack hasn't heard any of this but you mentioned the particular species we were working with was vampire bats. Mm-hmm. First of all, very cool. Yeah. But then you also mentioned some of the local people living on an island and their past history. Yes. I think this would be good to sort of... So, so paint the picture for us. What was the location? What were you doing with the vampire bats? And then who were you working with okay. there? Um, so I'll set the scene um, starting off from where I was before. So I got to know this this woman who was working with bats in Argentina and she said, yeah, come and join me for, for just over a month um, on my nature reserve in Argentina where I'm doing all this bat research. Can I just very quickly, that's a fantastic sentence yeah. to be sort of have said to you. Yeah. Come and join me on my nature reserve in Argentina <laughs> yeah. Yeah. for a month. Yeah. <laughs> I was really lucky that I already lived in Argentina because my mum's Argentine. So for me, it was like like public transport transport's quite affordable there so I was able to just hop on a bus and go nice um yeah which is a very fortunate position to be in and yeah she her project is essentially trying to work out what exactly what species there are exactly in that area um because the way she works it's the second largest wetland in South America I believe wow so after the Pantanal it's called the Esteros Ibera and it's the most incredible habitat because it's where the old delta of the Parana River used to be. So you've got these like old islands which are now just like small pockets of Atlantic rainforest and the, the rest of it's sort of like flooded grassland or marsh and you get these channels which are super deep but they're really clear and you can see sand and there are fish swimming down them and the caiman, Whoa. anacondas. 
Um, so Does Rosie she need a podcast? <laughs> a podcast in residence? That sounds beautiful. Yeah. It's just incredible. And because of like how intricate and specialised the habitat is, because you've got these pockets of rainforest and then these huge open expanses of marsh and grassland, um, you get the most incredibly diverse bat populations there. And nobody's really done any research there before. And as I mentioned before as well, there's no key of bat locations to Argentina. So her project is looking at, okay, what do we have so we can better protect it? And what echolocations are they making so we can start to use acoustic monitoring, which is less invasive than mist netting? Mm-hmm. So we did catch a lot of vampire bats, but those weren't really the species we got we're kind of after i mean like we, it's obvious that they're there because the local people that do a lot of cattle ranching catch them a lot and well not catch them but yeah catch them having yeah. a gnaw at their cows oh i see <laughs> so, got you yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. call them red toothed yeah, yeah. catch them red toothed exactly <laughs> in the act um so yeah we were catching vampire bats occasionally fruit bats but a lot of insectivorous species being a wetland um yeah there's mm. lots of water lots of insects mm. so yeah yeah that's kind of what we were doing that with question the next before. bit then was who were the people living on the islands okay so this is part two of the story okay. so after i finished working there um i started working for two months on a na- another nature reserve in the same wetland that was reintroducing giant anteaters jaguars uh, collared peccaries Whoa. pampas deer um giant river otters basically all of the big stuff all yeah. of the really like cool animals big south american animal bingo yes exactly um and my job was to monitor the reintroduced collared peccaries and anteaters on horseback with radio telemetry and make sure that they were being um i yeah, mean that's a cool job if i ever heard one <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 it was just amazing i had an incredible time and uh yeah we were working on a very large island that on one side was surrounded by lake and on the other side was surrounded by really like deep marsh so the island itself was kind of like savannah habitat with um like yeah again these pockets of rainforest on it and yeah our job was to just ride around the island and make sure that the anteaters were doing all right their collars were fitted properly the collared peccaries were doing okay they kept on trying to dig their way into the jaguar enclosures which was like short-sighted very unwise yes it was a bit stressful it's like we put all this time and energy into trying to establish these collared peccary populations and they were just trying to (laughs) 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 self-destruct yeah and there were two local people that were hermits that were living on the island and they we worked quite closely with them and they were just incredible because they had the most um, in-depth knowledge of the wildlife that lived there and there's a big problem in that part of Argentina because the colonizers when they arrived um in like the 1600s 1700s they brought um like domestic pigs with them and they also brought red deer for some reason oh um so yeah Red deer haven't reached the island yet, but there's a really big problem with the domestic pigs and they're taking away the niche of the collared peccaries. Mm. So to be able to have a stable population of collared peccaries, you kind of need to get rid of the the domestic pigs first. So we were hunting those and feeding them to the jaguars. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, so they were helping us with that. And um, yeah, they were also helping us capture capybaras to feed to the jaguars. Is there a capybara problem or were they just, you know, spare? Yeah. Well, actually, there, there isn't necessarily a problem, but because they're missing the top predators, there is ah, a huge number okay. of them and they're getting all these diseases and not doing too well because of that. 
Um, so yeah, we were catching very sustainably catching yeah. a few capybaras because each jaguar needed to feed like roughly once a week. So jaguars only feed once a week. It could be every four to five days. It could be a bit more frequently than that. Business it was week. Business week. <laughs> yes. That's still more than I. Uh, that's still less. Sorry than I thought. I guess. Yeah. Then no, they really don't need to eat as much as you'd think, and they spend a long time just lying around and digesting yeah. afterwards. Mm. Yeah. And so obviously you have had some absolutely incredible experiences you're now out here with Opal for anyone out there I mean you've mentioned getting into bat work and the licenses in the Mm -hmm. UK and just I guess you know picking the phone up and seeing who you can get in touch with would you have any other kind of advice for people listening wondering how they can get involved with conservation work yeah I think honestly just go for it because when I did those two jobs in Argentina I was only 18 and I didn't have any prior experience with conservation yeah. and I honestly didn't think that I would get either of those jobs but I did and I learned my stars doing it and then once you've got something like that it's much easier to get other jobs because you then got that background experience but I think honestly just giving it a go even if you don't think you're going to get it sometimes you'll be surprised mm, yeah. and I think just being really positive and willing to learn and enthusiastic is actually the best thing fantastic yeah nice and then lastly um when you go back to the uk Mm. i believe you're starting a master's yes that's right and i'm guessing it's to do with bats yes correct again (laughs) so could you tell us a little bit then about what you're going to be studying in the uk with the bats there Mm -hmm. yeah so i did my undergraduate thesis on autumn swarming in bats which is essentially a giant bat party where they find their mate yeah (laughs) So this occurs every autumn and it was previously thought that bats only did this at underground sites in the UK and all of this research was done kind of like in the early 2000s but not much has been done since then Um, so there's kind of a big knowledge gap between what consultants and bat workers know and what's actually published in the literature but because what's published in the literature is kind of I guess what governments look at to do policy and things like that it's important that we kind of bridge that gap so Um, yeah bat conservation organizations and bat workers have noticed that bats actually use um, a whole range of different sites to perform this behavior but they're not necessarily protected by law because only the roosting spots are protected Mm. by law not actually places where they would just say like gather for social functions so by identifying those sites which what that's what my project is so I'm going to be identifying what sites and what landscape features are important for autumn swarming and then if you know those what conservation measures can you put in place to better protect them fantastic well good. I think there's only one question left there is only one question left yeah the big question the biggest question you've ever been asked in your oh life goodness. <laughs> Molly what is the biggest animal you could take in a fight <laughs> <laughs> um I've given this some thought. Good. And I think it would be an anteater. Oh, a giant anteater. A giant anteater, yes. I think that's one of the most hardcore animals that we've heard. Yeah. Because they have a secret spot. Oh, Oh, hello. Here we go. (laughs) Me and Roddy both leaned forward. (laughs) Um, They have a little spot between their shoulder blades where if you scratch them, they just instantly calm down. So I'd beat them by scratching them. (sighs) instant subdue instant subdual with with a scratch oh my god i think this is the first one where where the person has worked and intimately known yeah the foe yeah i've been uh chased by an anteater before 
so, previous encounter, that's a rematch. Cool. Yes. They're quite scared. Am I right in thinking anteaters have killed people? They have, yes. You do have to be really careful. Because they've got huge claws, haven't they? And they can just like tear yeah. at you with those. But they do have really bad eyesight. So if you're being chased by one and you're, say, in wetland with like the grass grows in a really weird way, it grows in like really tall clumps that are like solidified by termites so it's not like you can just run through it you kind of have to like jump yeah constantly huh. like a deer i guess to get through, or a small dog <laughs> <laughs> um so you can kind of run in a zigzag and it works in your advantage that the grass is so hard um so if you run in a zigzag they kind of lose you and then they would have to smell you out and uh, so smelling in a zigzag is quite slow yeah molly are you talking from personal experience here? I am indeed. <laughs> I got chased by a pregnant hormonal anteater. And then I dropped the antenna and had to get off my horse and pick it back up again. And this is the horse's first time seeing an anteater. So she was really stressed out. I mean, even for a human, the first time seeing an anteater is quite something. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right. Well, giant anteater, scratch between the shoulder blades. It's on the board. Done. <laughs> Molly, thank you very much. That's all right. Thank you so much. <laughs> And with that, our Mexico bat episode goes flying into the night in search of a tasty fig, leaving me left to say thank you very much for listening to How Many Geese. Check out the links in the podcast description to find out more about Operation Wallacea, to find the link to our Instagram page where we're posting pictures from our time in Mexico, and for our Buy Me A Coffee page, where, if you're feeling generous, you can drop us a donation. Next week is our final episode of our Mission Mexico special. But the astute amongst you will have noticed there's still about seven minutes left of this one. We want to say a big thank you to all the students and staff who were so accommodating to us turning up and sticking mics on everybody. And so, the last seven minutes of this podcast are going to give you a taste of just how crazy jungle life can be as we explore the world of the Hormiguero fashion show. Listener, it's the morning after the night before. Oof. It's, yeah. I'm not hungover. But I should be. It was pretty wild last night. It got loose. It, it got loose. It got hot, steamy and wild. Homaguero Research Camp took an off-ramp. Yeah. Wasn't on the highway. We had a fashion show. We had a fashion show. Last night. And there's no two ways, you know, there's no other way of saying that. No ifs, no buts. We had a fashion show in the middle of the jungle. Yeah, we did. Now, for a bit more context, this is things like this, I would say, are not uncommon in Operation Wallacea. No. In terms of when it's the students last night at a particular camp or on the expedition, there's usually a bit of a celebration. Yeah. A bit of a party yep. that happens. And the theme of last night's was that all the students and the staff, mm-hmm. who fully embraced it as well, yeah, yeah. Um, got involved in a jungle fashion show. Yep. Where they were split into teams. Five teams. Each team choosing one model to dress up using all of their creative nous and things that they could find from the camp and the jungle yeah a lot of leaves a lot of there was a lot of leaves on show um and also quite a few there there were hammocks wrapped in there there were um by and large it was sort of variations on the theme the theme being duct tape leaves (laughs) cups yeah (laughs) yeah very true um but some excellent entries i mean all five of them they built these in like i don't know it was three hours something fantastic like that. yeah you know carl lagerfield watch out <laughs> because there are some designers here who would oh give you a run for your money now another interesting element um of said jungle fashion show 
became our role yeah in it because i would say that there are not many jungle fashion shows that have ever been able to have eurovision style commentary go along with them (laughs) yet here we were at this camp in the middle of the jungle woven into the fabric with podcast mics yep able to sit there and provide our own commentary on the proceedings yeah so we do have a recording of that which you will be able to listen to i think frankly it's a case of without further ado yeah here is last night (laughs) Strap in, listener. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen. Paris. Milan. (laughs) New York. The elite club of fashion capitals of the world is about to get a new member as we welcome Hormiguero Research Camp, population 23, to this prestigious group of global icons. First to the catwalk. This is team We Are A Team from B, Carl and Josh with their outfit Jungle Fever. What's it a commentary on, Roddy? The embodiment of Josh's illness. (laughs) Made from a recycled piñata. A look at the toilet paper coming out of the back. That's a real nice touch. You yeah. gotta like that. An exceptional creative decision to get ready in an ant's nest. <laughs> I think we can all ask ourselves, what does that bring to the art? <laughs> Next, we have team Donde Hasta La Biblioteca. Oh, here we go. This is a strong look. Whoa. Oh, oh, oh wow. wow. This is from Sule, Liz, Jamie, and Danny. Mayan gods theme, with Liz as creative director on sewing, Sule as Mayan researcher, and Danny as model. Jamie was originally also a model, but some questions on cultural appropriation. (laughs) He respectfully bowed out. (laughs) Next up. Team only the bare necessities. Oh, oh, hello. I see a machete <laughs> and I see very little clothes. <laughs> From Bear, Kira, Margot, and Sophie. <laughs> this outfit is inspired by being left behind at Dos Nas, putting the serve in survey. <laughs> Bear shows us what happens to an RA when left behind. Jack, thoughts on this costume? Thoughts on, uh, I'm, I'm wondering what's going on in the, uh, what's in the left hand team? It's just a stick. Just it's just a, a stick. St- Roddy, it's just a stick. It's just a <laughs> stick. Next, we've got team Gringoritas. From Sasha, Alice and Kezia with Kezia as model. The theme is a jungle tourist slash gap year slash finding yourself in the ruins. <laughs> Or a hammock factory, by the looks of it. Finding yourself in a hammock factory. With Alice as the creative director, note the snail shell as a feature piece on the neckline. Oh, yes. And lastly... But not least. No. We have team three girls, two cups. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my word! I mean, how to describe this? He's got his hands. This is modelled by Joe, who's wearing a bin bag, and it's his hands tied behind his back with a candy necklace. Yep. And not forgetting the apple stuffed in his mouth like a suckling pig. <laughs> yeah, a dangerous new SNN theme since we last saw it. <laughs> this was not in the research notes. This is from Joe, Natalie, and the Lilies. And note that Model Joe is strapped in and can't piss, but has needed to for some time. That's dedication to fashion. <laughs> Can we have all five models on the catwalk, please? I mean, it's a really strong showing this year, Roddy. It's very strong. It's a really strong showing this year from all candidates. From all candidates that are absolutely head and shoulders above anything we've seen in the past. <laughs> Quite literally. Yeah. And it spans cultures. It spans creative vision. <laughs> I don't know what culture it is. It spans comfort. But I'm not sure it should leave this jungle. No. <laughs>